This is an ABC podcast. It's said that every nine seconds, somewhere in the world, someone buys a thriller featuring the character Jack Reacher. And for fans, when a new Jack Reacher book comes out, everything else gets thrown out of the window. There are stories of people devouring a Jack Reacher thriller on a plane trip, their plane landing, all the other passengers getting up, collecting their things and leaving, and that reader is still sitting there, completely oblivious, caring only about finishing the book. The creator of these highly addictive Jack Reacher novels is my guest on Conversations Today, Lee Child. Lee didn't plan on being one of the world's leading thriller writers, but when he found himself middle-aged and out of a job, he knew he had to come up with something. I spoke with Lee in 2018 when he just released Past Tense, the 23rd book in the Jack Reacher series. Hi, Lee. Hi, how are you? Good. Your new Jack Reacher thriller, Past Tense, where does Jack Reacher find himself in the start of this story? Well, of course, at the start of the story, he is uh, just wandering. You know, Reacher is a guy with no particular place to go and all the time in the world to get there. And... He has very few rules in his life, but he likes to be warm, partly because he doesn't want to have to buy a coat. So the the book opens, he's spent the last days of summer uh, in a small town on the coast of Maine. And then he, he plans a diagonal trip across America all the way down to San Diego. It's uh, a huge road trip. He's going to enjoy it, but he doesn't get far. He only makes it <laughs> to the next state, which is New Hampshire. He gets a ride, and that ride fizzles out, and he's walking for a bit, and he sees a fork in the road. To the left is where he should really go, because that's where the buses are, that's where the traffic is, that's the sensible place to be. But to the right is a town that he's heard of, Laconia, New Hampshire. And he knows that name because he's seen it on ancient, dusty family paperwork. It's his father's place of birth. He's never been there. His father never really talked about it. But he thinks, oh, let's go and have a look. Let's see if we can find the old guy's house. Let's see where he grew up. This interest in his family and his background, that doesn't seem like a very Jack Reacher no, kind it of isn't. interest. It is not. It's not a typical thing. And in fact, you know, he hesitates. Should he bother or not? And, and he thinks, well, I'm right here. I ought to. And um, that really came from the fact that my own dad had died just before I started writing this book. And... People are going to read too much into that. It really is. It wasn't that I was upset or traumatized or anything like that. It was more that I was just speculating. I mean, my dad obviously was my dad, and I'd known him literally all my life. And and yet, how well do we know anybody? I was thinking back over his life, obviously, at the end of it, and I was thinking, I know the basic shape of it, but there's so much that I don't know. And I think that's true of all of us. We never really know anybody 100%. So was there anything in my dad's life that I don't know about? Well, obviously lots. And so the same thing for Risha. So he's just intrigued enough to take the detour. And whatever gets thrown at him, he seems remarkably untraumatized by it. He'll just move on to the next thing, the next situation. He does, because, you know, he's been in the military, he was, was in the military police, and in, in one of the other books, I remember, somebody says something to him, expecting him to be freaked out, and he says, I was a military cop, I've seen everything. And so, in the normal run of events, however extreme they are, he can, he can deal with pretty much anything, yeah. Do you think he changes much over the books? This is your 23rd Jack Reacher book. Has he changed? That's a great question because it sort of calls into into question the nature of a series. Why do we like a long-running series? And surely part of the reason why is that we we crave the familiarity, we crave the comfort. It's like a good old friend coming to visit once a year and you don't want him to change. Obviously, you want a new story, and obviously, you want the story to be exciting, but you want the character to be the same old familiar friend. And so, actually, I work very hard to stop him from changing. But then, in a circular sort of argument, obviously, I'm changing. This is 20 plus years now, and I've changed, obviously, so he must change too. But I do try and minimize it. I'm not one of those writers who believes what they teach you, uh, you know, at writing school or when you're doing your MA in fine arts or whatever it is. I don't believe that there needs to be a character arc where the hero changes by the end of the book. 
I don't believe that he necessarily needs to learn something during the book. I think readers of a series love the, the familiarity. And so I do try and keep him the same, the same reliable guy, because I want people to to feel that lovely rush of relaxation. Oh, here he is. Here's that guy. And they can set off on another adventure with a thoroughly reliable character. What are some of those qualities or characteristics that he carries with him in, into each Jack Reacher book? Well, he's severely rational. Uh, he just, he's a thinker. He's a, he, uh, he, he's a data-driven person. Um, he takes every, the rough with the smooth with the same kind of equanimity. He's seen a lot in the military, so there's not much in the civilian world that can, can freak him out. And he also has a sort of uh, very solidly rational approach to possessions and stuff and, you know, mobile telephones, computers. Why would he need one? You know, <laughs> in one of the books, somebody says, you don't have a cell phone. And he says, who would I call? Who would call me? You know, what does he need one for? What does he carry with him? He carries... In the in the beginning of the series, he carried nothing but his uh, folding toothbrush. But then, and this again was very interesting, how how fiction and myth and legend collides with reality. After nine eleven, in the real world, you couldn't do anything with cash anymore. You couldn't buy an air ticket with cash. Can barely do anything without photo ID. So, in a way, I wanted to ignore that because the fundamental truth about the Reacher books is they're much more based on myth and legend than uh, they're not necessarily socially realistic. And so I wanted to ignore it, but I thought, actually, this is one of those gray areas where I can't ignore it. So along with his folding toothbrush in his pocket is an old expired passport and an ATM card. And that's all he's got. Those are his only possessions. He carries no bag. He has no spare clothes. What he does is when his old clothes after two or three days get too ratty, he will go into, uh, you know, a janitorial supply store or some cheap store and he'll buy a new set of clothes throw the old ones away right there in the in the bin in the store and then he's good for another two or three days i like his approach to ironing too yeah and that's people are you know people wonder about that he what he does is he takes his trousers off every night obviously when he goes to bed he stretches them out very neatly and puts them under the mattress and to me that's perfectly logical that's what i do <laughs> really yeah that's what i will do tonight when i uh, you know when i go to bed tonight my pants will go under the mattress and they'll look great in the morning <laughs> Um, when you say that he is, he's like an archetype or, or a character from myth, what sort of figure do you see as the antecedents of Jack Reacher in myth? Well, you know, in America, a lot of people think that I've basically uh, stolen him from the Westerns because he's very much like Shane or he's very much like any character out of Zane Grey. Uh, those Zane Grey novels are like paradigms of the whole thing. You know, there's a homestead somewhere way out west. All the men are absent on a cattle drive. Uh, there's some terribly perilous situation. It's all about to go really, really bad. And then a mysterious rider comes in off the range. And in exchange for a woman-cooked meal, he will unsheath his rifle, take care of the problem, and then ride away again. And uh, so the Americans think I stole him from that. But of course, actually, they stole him from much earlier antecedents in Europe. This is a medieval European legend, the knight errant, somebody of some kind of substantial merit who has for some reason been banished from the court and sentenced to wander the land doing good deeds. Uh, Sir Lancelot, Sir Gawain. Um, you know, Robin Hood is in there somewhere. But again, it wasn't invented by the medieval Europeans either. It's, it was stolen or developed from the Scandinavian sagas, who stole it from the Anglo-Saxon poems. And you might say they stole it from ancient Greek legend. You might even say religious myths are in there, the sudden appearance of a savior. This is a character that has been invented and reinvented over and over and over again for possibly 3,000 years because I think we crave a character like that. You know, if we have a problem that is really bad, wouldn't it be great if somebody would just show up, solve the problem, and then move on? <laughs> and the moving on seems to be critical. The moving on has been critical for 3,000 years, because if they stick around, what do you do with them? You know, there's a gratitude issue. What do you do? Give them the key to the city or whatever? So it, it is a myth where 
it's our our desires projected. We want this person to come and help us. And Reacher is absolutely the modern version of that. And if they stick around, then they become a human. They stop being a mythic figure. They, they have a personality. They have a history. You get all those details that you don't really want to know in Just a Saviour. Exactly. They need to be very anonymous and faceless. The same thing in Japan, you know, the Ronin myth, which is exactly the same. This is a samurai that's been disowned by his master and banished. He is just a figure moving through the landscape. So there's always a perpetual danger, I think, in a lot of types of novels, but particularly this one, the danger of over-explaining. It's much better just to hold back and let the reader fill in the gaps. Do you think that appeals differently to male and female readers? What have you experienced around that? You know, I used to think so. Yeah, I really did. I thought that the idea of just walking away with no possessions, no commitments, no obligations, you know, no mortgage payment, no bills to pay. I used to think that was a male fantasy. But actually, over the years, I've learned from hearing from women, it's absolutely a woman's fantasy too. They would absolutely love just to be somewhere else tomorrow, not have to deal with the stuff they have to deal with. And I guess that's part of the appeal that, um, you know, he has no everyday problems. Yeah, I don't even think I'd need to take a toothbrush with me, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> just the going is yeah. exciting enough. How does that idea of Reacher as a mythic figure relate to the genre that you write in, in thriller, is there something about suspense and and fear in stories that is really old in us as humans too? I think it must be, you know, because I think that definitely there's a strand in the human psyche that loves to be scared as long as they know secretly it's going to be all right in the end. And it's very basic. I noticed it in, in my daughter when she was a baby, you know, I would bath her and then I would pick her up out of the bath and pretend to drop her and catch her at the very last minute. And she would just shriek with delight, which is a kind of odd reaction to that. But it sort of showed me that they love to be terrified as long as they secretly know it's going to be okay. And I do think that's why we read thrillers. The other benefit with a thriller or a crime novel, of course, is that order is restored. The problem is solved. The bad guys are caught. And that pretty much is an antidote to real life, which is very unsatisfactory because, sadly, real life order is not really restored. There's never any closure. If you, you know, if your car is stolen, you'll never see it again. They'll never find the guys. If your house is broken into, you're never going to get your stuff back. <laughs> but in a book... Of course you do. And so real life has this buzz of frustration and, and dissatisfaction. And so we turn to fiction for something that turns out right. Your books aren't gruesome, but the violence is explicit. I learned a lot about punching from past tense. Do you stage the fight scenes in your head? How do you imagine them? Um, it's pretty much memory from when I was a little kid. You know? <laughs> really? Yeah, I was. Uh, I grew up in Birmingham, England, which was back then a pretty rough and basic industrial town, and people just had very few emotional resources. That they weren't very articulate in terms of solving disputes. Everything was about a fight. Whatever it was, it would be settled with a fight. And I was a big kid, happily. You know, I was always bigger than everybody else. I was really good at it, and I really liked it. So I just remember, uh, you know, Reacher against five bikers or whatever it might be is me aged eight against five other kids in the schoolyard. <laughs> and so often for writers, Lee, that's like wish fulfillment. But for you, this is actual historical memory, is it's it? It's reported. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned a lot. I mean, there was one in one of the books, I, I had this thing that people seem fascinated about. Reacher is facing five bad guys. And he thinks to himself, you never actually face five bad guys. Because if you're efficient enough with the first three, then the final two will all always run away. So it never gets worse than uh, one against three. And I learned that, uh, you know, that happened to me. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. You well, know? As a kid, that happened to yeah, you. Yeah, I, I remember it explicitly. I, my great aunt was visiting and she was the senior matriarch in the family at that point and therefore deserving of tremendous respect. And um, my mother even put us in clean clothes that day. And the arrangement was that I should meet my mother and my great aunt at the library after school. And uh, so I did. I was hustling up to the library and you had to go down this alley to get to the library. And in the alley were these five kids waiting for me, you know, with some beef 
some long forgotten thing. I don't even know what it was. My immediate reaction was twofold. I thought, oh no, I'm going to be late to the library, which is a bad thing. And secondly, oh no, I'm wearing clean clothes. I'm not supposed to fight wearing clean clothes. But they had to be dispatched. And so partly because I was late and it had to be done very efficiently, I really didn't bother sort of arguing or or discussing anything with them. I just laid into the ringleader, which is always the best thing. If you take down the top guy, the other the others don't really know what to do. Two loyal lieutenants stepped in and they went down and the last two ran away. <laughs> and so then I ran up to the library and I was a bit disheveled and I actually had a couple of spots of blood on my clean shirt and they were all cross with me. I love that Jack Reach was born in an alleyway on the way to the Birmingham Library. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When you started writing Past Tense, Lee, did you know how it was going to end? What was going to happen to Paddy and Shorty and Jack? No, I had no idea. I never have an idea. And uh, I work in a what we call uh, seat of the pants. You know, there's two types of writer in this genre, what they call the plotters and the pantsters. <laughs> and I'm the pants, I'm the king of the pantsters. I have no clue what's going to happen in the next paragraph, let alone the, the end of the book. Because to me, um, the, the thing that really captures my interest is not com- necessarily completing a novel. It's telling myself the story. I'm just fascinated by story. And so if I planned it out, even to any degree, even if it was just one sheet of scribbled notes, I would know the story and I would no longer be interested in it. I'd be ready for the next story. So it's really important to me that I don't know what's going to happen. I want to let the story, the book, evolve organically and naturally. And it's an insecure way to do it. You feel like it's a high wire and you could fall off at any point and go nowhere. But actually, I find it so helpful because you're, you've got total liberty to, do, to go off in any direction. If something that you've just written strikes you as bearing new possibilities, you can just head in that direction. Whereas I think if you had an outline, you would feel straitjacketed by it. You would feel reluctant to depart from it because then the outline is meaningless. Do you think that it, it kind of puts you in the place of the reader too? Like, is it when your adrenaline fires up, is that a good clue to you that, okay, I'm, I'm on a good... Oh, absolutely, here. yeah. And I think all good writers must base everything on on how they feel as readers. Um, and that's, I love that feeling as a reader because I, I read so many books and I love that feeling where, you know, you've been, you've had to do something and then you, you get a chance, you pick up the book and you just think, wow, I wonder what's going to happen next. That's exactly the feeling I want when I sit down to write. And it happens to me, you know, I sit down to write and I think, oh, what's going to happen next? And if I knew already what was going to happen next, I think there would be a certain flatness to it, a certain boredom in just typing it out. And I think that would certainly show through and it would communicate to the reader and it would produce a a duller experience. I'm literally as excited as they are at that point. What is going to happen? Tell me how the idea of no grape left in the fridge is relevant to the way you write your thrillers. Well, that... That um, that dates back to my days in TV, and uh, I worked for Granada Television in Manchester, England, which was um, at that time just a great, great producer. Um, a lot of great documentary, but really, it's it's remembered for great drama. But it also did some rubbish shows as well, you know, like anybody. We did some awful shows. And one of them was a, a cookery show. It was like a competition where we you set up two working kitchens in the studio and you brought in two celebrity chefs and it was some kind of cook-off. And the researcher would randomly throw ingredients into the refrigerators, just random, a pork chop, a walnut, you know, a grape, whatever. <laughs> Everything's in there. And the point of the competition was that the, the two chefs obviously would score more points for a really tasty, good meal. But then they got bonuses if they used all the ingredients. And so it's a bit like how I write. At the beginning, the first half of the book, let's say, I'm just writing for the fun of it. This happens, that happens, this person gets killed. And then about halfway through the book, I think, all right, what have I got? What have I got now? I've got all these strands. How do I tie this up towards the end? And hopefully I'll tie them all up and I'll use all those ingredients. Maybe there will be a grape left in the fridge, but then I can at least say to myself, 
It was a deliberate red herring. (laughs) A few years ago, an English academic, Andy Martin, shadowed you when you wrote Make Me. Was it off-putting having someone leaning over your shoulder as you were writing a novel? It kind of was at first, but he, Andy was, he's a fun guy. I mean, he's a serious academic. He's all into, you know, French existential literature and all that kind of thing. Very serious guy, but also very fun and somewhat disorganized, to be honest. So that he got this crazy idea only days before I was due to start writing Make Me. So he emailed me and said, how about this madcap scheme? And probably if I'd had time to think about it longer, I would have said no. But because it was such short notice, I said, yeah, let's do it. Because it was my 20th book. And somehow I wanted to just do something a bit different or mark the 20th book in some way. And so I said, yes. So he he came over instantly to New York and uh, literally sat behind me as I pondered and started the book. And it was. It was intensely odd at the beginning because writing otherwise is so solitary. But in the end, maybe it was like Stockholm Syndrome or something, but in the end, I quite enjoyed it because, you know, you're sitting there writing the book and there are the weird, tiny mechanical things. Where should the comma go? Why is this word better than the other word? All these things. The writer himself is obsessed by that. That's meat and drink. And you've got nobody who is remotely interested in that stuff. But actually, I did that, yeah, because he, you know, I was able to talk with him about it. And in the end, in a funny way, I got quite fond of it. And I um, I looked forward to discussing each day's work. He, um, he says that you spend quite a bit of time away from your desk, Lee, while you're writing. What else is going on in your apartment <laughs> while you're working on a book? Well, you see, he was uh, confounded by the fact that I seemed to spend a lot of time, hours and hours, lying on my sofa, staring into space. And he called that goofing off. But I think, actually, that's definitely not goofing off. That is actually the work. What he saw, you know, when I was at my desk and he was sitting behind me, that was the typing. Uh, It's not quite, that's the lesser half of the work, the thinking, the daydreaming the speculating, um, and I, I can do that for hours. I've got a very long, very comfortable couch, and I lie there, and that is where the true work is done, in the daydreaming aspect. Are you able to read other novels at, at the same time as write your own? I am now, but I was worried about it in the beginning because I remember when I, I wrote my first book, I was reading Schindler's Ark at the time, and... Um, I found kind of Keneally-type phrases leaking through. And so I stopped reading fiction in those early years while I was writing. But now I think I'm so secure in the voice and the character and the style that I can afford to again. So, yeah, I read I read anything. And also, you know, everybody should remember that that is actually part of the process, that writing is reading to a large extent. No writer can ever be a writer without being a, a reader first. And the imbalance is huge. You know, I read 300 books a year probably and write one. So I'm always much more of a reader than a writer. And happily now, yeah, it doesn't leak through. So I'm free to read what I want. But in the early years, I would stick to rather dry nonfiction because I thought, yeah, that is not going to leak through. (laughs) And if it does, that could be something Jack Reacher is actually thinking about. Yeah, because Reacher is a bit of a pedant (laughs) himself, you know. He loves knowing stuff and he, he loves facts and he loves accurate data. Is Reacher a reader? Yeah, although, of course, his lifestyle is such that he doesn't he doesn't carry a book because uh, it wouldn't fit in his pocket necessarily, he doesn't have a bag, but in many of the books. And this is how, this is one of the joys of reading, just accidental discoveries. You know, he che- checks into a cheap motel and there's a couple of paperbacks been left there, or he finds them abandoned on a bus or something like that. And, and the randomness of that is lovely. And in a, in a funny way, you know, that dates right back to... Years before I started writing, it was the way that I realized I could be a writer because I did find a book. I found an old paperback book in the seat pocket of an airplane and I started reading it. It was great. And I got to the end and the last chunk had fallen out. You know how paperbacks are kind of glued together in sections. The last section had fallen out and there was no ending. I remember thinking, oh, I'll never know how this 
book ends. And then I realized, wait a minute, none of this actually happened. This is all made up. This is just some author making it up. So I'm entitled to make up my own ending. And it's just as valid as his ending. So I just imagined an ending to that book. And I think it was pretty good. Did you ever check it against the actual ending? I didn't, actually. I didn't. I just thought my ending is fine. What was the book? I can't really say because otherwise <laughs> the uh, the original author is going to be very upset. And he's going to say, no, my ending was better. <laughs> But uh, it, it reassured me that, yeah, this is possible. This can be done. When you, um, you know, pick yourself up from that comfortable sofa of yours and, and sit down at the desk to put yourself into Jack Reacher's head, do you enjoy it? I do, because it feels like I'm visiting with Jack Reacher just as much as the reader is. And people are going to say, that is strange, because obviously I, I live with Reacher all the time. But actually, no, I don't, because one of the perils for a series writer or a character-based series writer. One of the real dangers is that you get too close to the character. If you fall in love with the character, the series is ruined. And Why? I think, well, because then you're, you're not presenting an honest portrait anymore. You're just making it sugary and too perfect and you're defending the guy and you're only showing his good side. I've seen that happen in several series where it, it just ruins it. And so... Being aware of that, I make sure I never think about Reacher when I'm not writing. And I also am super critical of him. I, I aim to like him less than you're going to like him because he, he's a very bad guy in a lot of ways. You know, he's, he's a filthy, dirty barbarian. He doesn't change his clothes every day. He, he will perfectly happily shoot people in the back or whatever. And if you fall in love with him, then you're going to make him more noble, more principled, and it all gets a bit too sugary, and it all gets completely false. So my, my intention is to like him less than you're going to, and that keeps him working. Podcast. Broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. As you said, Lee, past tense is partly about Jack Reacher discovering his dad or looking into his dad. What about your own dad? Where did he grow up? My dad grew up in Belfast, uh, Northern Ireland. And in a lot of ways, that was the, the key to his life because uh, the situation in, in the United Kingdom is that, you know, Britain is made up of Wales, England and Scotland. And then Northern Ireland is this appendage that then added to Britain becomes the United Kingdom. And those uh, unionists in, in Northern Ireland, basically the Protestants in Northern Ireland, are just super identified with Britain. They so want to be British. They feel themselves British. And my father's whole life was about being kind of more of an English gentleman than the English. He was desperate. And in a lot of ways, that dominated his life. Tell me about who his family sold the family home to when they left Belfast. They had a house in what you call Cypress Avenue. And Cypress Avenue is an actual street, a long, very nice road in East Belfast, which is the Protestant half of the city. But the word Cypress Avenue denote a neighborhood. It's, it's Cypress Avenue itself, plus all the little side streets, like, like the backbone of a fish. That is the stronghold, the posh. It was a solidly Protestant, respectable neighborhood. And um, his parents in about, I guess it would be around about 1940 or, or 41, my grandparents um, sold that house and moved out a little ways into another pleasant suburb. My grandfather had been uh, wo badly wounded in, in World War One, and he was his mobility was declining. And so they had to move out to a bungalow with uh, where there were no stairs. So they sold their house to a family called Morrison, who a couple of years later had a, a kid. It was their first son called Ivan, <laughs> Ivan Morrison, who then became 
uh, famous as a singer called Van Morrison. And has an amazing song, Cypress Avenue. He does, absolutely, about that area. And uh, he, he and I are in contact occasionally. He likes to reach your books. And the funny thing is, you know, Van Morrison is a great musician and he is a bit of an irascible character. And you cannot imagine somebody more different than my dad. You know, the two of them both being born and growing up in that house is, is, is a bizarre contrast. He wore a bowler hat and striped trousers and that whole British gentleman thing. But the irony of it was, you know, he lived his entire life about 75 years out of date. You know, he was basically a late Victorian Edwardian gentleman in his own mind. And he'd sort of not noticed that by this time we were in the 1960s and 70s. You were raised in in Birmingham, as you say, the heart of industrial England. Does that mean you grew up surrounded by factories and, and smokestacks? Yeah, absolutely. And I remember, to me, it was factories were the only thing, you know, that I'd never seen anything else. And I remember once going to the shops with my mother, and this was, of course, a long time ago before packaging, you know, before the sort of packaging we have now, certainly no supermarkets or anything like that. We went to the greengrocer and potatoes were sold in out of a sack. You know, there'd be a big sack of potatoes with the top, top rolled down and you just took your potatoes. And of course, they were all covered in dirt. And I remember thinking, wow, that potato factory must be a really dirty place. <laughs> Poor Birmingham boy, never seen, never seen any grass. Yeah, never saw a tree till I was about 11. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of work did most people do? What, what were the main industries? There were three main, it was all metalworking, all manufacturers of some kind, and it split into three, really. There was the massive car factory, uh, the Austin car factory at Longbridge. Uh, and the associated industries around that. And then there was an awful lot of um, high-tech metalwork, uh, you know, real e precision metalwork extrusions out of really exotic alloys and all that kind of stuff. But the most impressive to me was the final third, which were little tiny two- and three-man workshops where... Uh, you know, it'd just be an earth floor and there'd be a, a drill press and a lathe and two or three guys who were, could literally make anything by hand. They would just make anything. Anything could be made. No fuss, no drama. I had a friend up the street whose dad worked in one of those. And every other Saturday, we would go up there at lunchtime to find out, was he working overtime? Because if he was on the Saturday afternoon, I would get his season ticket to the football. So I would go up there, hopefully, that he would be working overtime. And I remember one time we got up there, Saturday lunchtime, and they were making fake ancient Greek coins. Um, there was a big order come in from the tourist board uh, on Crete. And the idea was that in Birmingham, they'd make these fake-looking ancient Greek coins, and the tourist board would then hide them under an inch or so of sand around the Palace of Knossos for tourists to find. And the tourists would think, oh, great, I found an ancient Greek coin. And, of course, they'd steal it and take it home. <laughs> what they didn't know was that my friend's father had made it about two weeks ago. <laughs> so what sort of attitude was there about work then when you were growing up? Was it, was it a noble thing? It was great, actually. And, and I really, I, I think it's something that we've lost, perhaps inevitably, but we've lost it. it. There were two things about it that people were so totally accustomed to the idea that raw materials come in one end of the factory and a finished product comes out the other end. So making things was entirely natural and instinctive so that if anything went wrong with your house or anything like that, you would fix it yourself. If your kid needed a toy, you would make it yourself. I remember a friend of mine had a like a crane. It, it, it clamped on the side of a table and it had a, a string and a counterweight and you could wind it up and pull things up and down, you know, like a working crane. And that, that hadn't been bought. That had been made. Somebody had brazed it together and welded it and made it themselves out of scrap pieces of metal. And so that was a huge thing. It was a very capable society. People understood how to do things, how to fix things, how to look after themselves. And in general, it was um, collectively, you know, these were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people doing, doing that kind of thing. And it was an, like an enormous resource. The skilled working class in England was uh, a resource more powerful than, you know, nuclear power. It was an immense thing. And it's been frittered away since then. We don't have that anymore. And I think that to me, uh, you know, inevitably labor and all of that gets expensive and people ship jobs offshore to China or whatever. So I'm not saying that it was somehow preventable, but I think it was a shame because... 
nothing replaced it. And the problem with England and to a certain extent America is that um, that immense skilled working class, their jobs were taken away and nothing else was provided for them to do. So largely they've become an underclass. And the attitude, not only self-reliance, but there was a sort of quiet pride in just doing the work without fuss, without drama. They just did it. I remember once when, when I bought my first flat, we had no furniture, so we bought a sofa. And it was, very, it was one of the very, very, very early flat pack sofas. And we couldn't even afford that. We had to get last year's model. And of course, it was in a battered old carton that had a hole in it. And one of the bolts had fallen out. So I couldn't assemble it because I only had three bolts where I needed four. So what I did is I, I um, took the bolt, took one sample bolt that I still had, took it down to one of these last remaining little workshops that I talked about. And I said to the guy, couldn't you make me one of these? And he said, come back in an hour. <laughs> so I did. I came back in an hour and he held out his hand to this big oil stained palm and there were two bolts in it. And I thought, oh, no, I only wanted one. I can't afford two. But one of them was the original, and one of them was the one he'd made, and they were identical. And he just made it by eye and by feel. And he was utterly just, he regarded it as completely routine, whatever. You want something, I'll make it. And I really missed that attitude. And the way the way you're describing it, too, Lee, it seems like that part of England is so often depicted as harsh and kind of dour and, and cruel. But it sounds like it felt uh prosperous it felt it felt like it was on the make in a good way when you were growing up it was and actually birmingham was prosperous i mean we did not see much of it because all the money went to paying back our war loans factories were absolutely humming and products were pouring out but we everything had to go to export in order to earn foreign currency and all that foreign currency went to pay back our dollar loans so that we didn't see any of it but the factories were humming. It was it was prosperous, and it was sort of culturally prosperous, mentally prosperous. Mm. The people were fully employed in in the full sense of that word. All that uh, making of things does that mean it was noisy? Was there sounds ringing out through the city? Yeah, it was it was very noisy, and it was um, also immense waves of people at the end of a shift. Um, I was born in Coventry, and one of my but moved to Birmingham when I was four. But I can still remember. Uh, a, a clear memory from Coventry, which was um, the centre of the bicycle industry. And, of course, back then, a regular working person didn't own a car. If you were very lucky, you had a motorbike with a sidecar. But most people had nothing except a bicycle. And I do remember the end of shifts in Coventry, literally tens of thousands of people on bicycles riding away from factories. It was a, like a tidal wave. Uh, it, lots of people all working. And it, and it gave them ironically, a solidarity that was actually more honorable than the allegedly upper class. People stuck together. You could absolutely hate your fellow worker, but if it came to a dispute, you stood shoulder to shoulder and you protected him. There was a kind of nobility about it that really the old British sense of honor and decency uh, vanished last from the working class, not from the upper class. Were books a part of your life growing up as oh, well? Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Because the concomitant of, of you know, everybody working hard and, and um, all the money going abroad was, yeah, we were poor in the sense, I'm not saying starving, you know, we ate and we had shoes, but there was never anything left over. In fact, there was a saying in Birmingham, everybody was paid on a Friday in cash. So there was a saying where other people would say as rare as hen's teeth. In Birmingham, they said as rare as a pound note on a Thursday. There was never any money left over. Buying a book was just impossible, you know, absurd. So the library was all that we had. And we haunted that place because it was the antidote. You know, you got a book in your hand. You could be anywhere in the world at any time of history doing anything. It was just wonderful. We loved the library. We And we operated a, a kind of Chicago voting style system with the library. Any visitor to our house had to sign up for a library ticket. What, so you could get more books? Yeah, our, <laughs> our dog had a library ticket. 
<laughs> and so you were officially allowed only two books a week per person, but we got it up to maybe five or six each. And we absolutely depended on those books. Absolutely. <laughs> Did they ask for photo ID when your dog joined that library? <laughs> <laughs> no, we just put down his name. His name was Timmy. And that was taken from a book, you know, the famous five. Uh, their dog was Timmy. So we called our dog Timmy. <laughs> Do you think, you know, you now live in an apartment overlooking Central Park in New York, writing novels. Have you taken any of that work ethic or attitude to labour into your own adult life? I certainly hope so, yeah. And I really feel that I have, that, um, you know, I'm not a pretentious person. I don't really consider myself an author in the grand sense. I consider myself an artisan. I'm making a useful product that people are going to use and enjoy, and I'm making it as well as I can with a kind of quiet pride, but nothing more than that. You know, I never talk about it, I never boast about it. I take a little tiny bit of internal quiet satisfaction if it has worked. And I, I'm like that guy who made my bolt. Um, I do it and I'm, I do it well, but I'm not shouting from the rooftops about it. After university, Lee, you started working in TV as a transmission controller. What does that involve? Well, it was a network situation where there were 15 stations on air all at the same time, and it was before computerization, obviously. So the transmission controller was a kind of air traffic controller of the network airwaves, programs coming in and out and um, gaps for local commercials and trailers and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of organizational stuff. There was a lot of operational stuff. And then if things started going wrong, it was up to us to put it right or fill the time or, you know, if there was a new news emergency it was up to us to make sure we could fit in the news flash and then adjust things later in the day and so on so it was a very very dynamic sort of job and it i realize now that it really the benefit for me now is that it exposed me to everything because you you worked a shift system and you just you were there all day or all night or whatever and whatever was passing through the station on the way to the transmitter, we dealt with. So we saw everything, all different kinds of programs. It, we weren't limited to one thing. We just dealt with it all. In my time there, I, I did probably 40,000 hours on duty. So I saw 40,000 hours of varied programming. And that absolutely teaches you the rhythms and the grammar and the pacing of entertainment of every kind. But the best thing about Granada was that they believed that popularity did not necessarily mean the lowest common denominator. They felt that a good, well-made, intelligent program could be popular, and generally it was. And that was a huge, valuable lesson, that you do not talk down to people. You don't, you don't deliberately aim low. You aim as high as you can, and if you're doing it well, people will like it. So did you imagine that you would spend the the rest of your career working in, in television? I did, kind of yeah. You know, I'm that generation that expected to work 40 years at the same place and get the gold watch and then retire. What happened? Why didn't you stay with Granada? Because um, they there was a complex situation in, in Britain where... Um, Television was highly regulated. Commercial television was regulated to the point where they were pr really happy for them to make profit, but they didn't want it to be obscene. And what that meant was that they had to spend money on programming and crucially on us. You know, we had great pay. We, we had a great hourly rate. We had pensions. We had life insurance, all that good stuff. And then the regulatory uh, atmosphere started to change in the late 80s and the 90s with Thatcherism and so on. And that cap on profits was abandoned. And so they just could make whatever money they wanted. And so one way of doing that, of course, is to cut cost. And we were the cost. And they, they just thought, well, we don't need these expensive old guys with their pensions and their great hourly rate. We can get recent graduates to do this for a quarter of the price. This happened to lots of people in the 90s and sadly it's still happening now. And so we were all kicked out. And um, I was just at a really pretty bad age. I was 40 when this happened. And that is a depressing thing to be thrown out of work when you're 40 because you feel... You feel kind of old and tired. You don't want to start learning some new thing. And yet the one thing that you, you're trained up for to, to an unbelievable degree has just been taken away from you. So that was the big turning point for me. I made it into a positive thing. You know, I wanted to, I thought 
calm down, just relax and, and think about this analytically. You've got some strengths here, you know. You're 40 years old. You've got habits, you've got skills, you've got discipline, you have succeeded in one thing, you're not the jerk you were when you were 20. Um, what can you do going forward? And I thought, I especially loved entertainment. That's all I've wanted to do. The idea that I can do something that gives you pleasure or joy for an hour or a day or whatever. How could I stay in that, in that arena? And the two things came together, that lifelong love of reading I suddenly thought, well, I, I could write books. You know, I could participate in this. And in a way, I was a bit nervous about it because books had been so hallowed, you know, so special. Um, I thought, really, am I going to participate in that? But I thought, yeah, why not? Try it, try it. And so um, I thought, I'll try it. I wrote the first one and it sold to a publisher with a, with a two-book deal. And I remember thinking, fantastic, that's two years before I have to get another job now. And now I'm on book 23 and I'm beginning to think maybe I'll never have to get another job. I think it's all working out, <laughs> that, that writing plan. How did you come up with the name Jack Reacher? Well, you know, that was um, completely accidental. I was aware that it was going to be important because, fingers crossed, this would work and it would turn into a, a long series. And therefore, the name is a crucial thing. Um, it has to endure a long time. And I didn't have any idea for it, really. I just couldn't put my finger on. It's my biggest weakness as a writer, frankly, is coming up with names. Uh, I couldn't think of anything, but I was out of work, as I said. And the big problem with being out of work is that you're at home and you're deemed available for all kinds of errands and stuff. And I, my wife said, um, we got to go to the supermarket tomorrow. And she wanted me to come because she's tiny and she wanted me to help her haul her home the heavy stuff. And that taught me two things. Not only I'll tell you about the name in just a sec, but that taught me something first because I was really looking forward to writing the next morning. I'd started the book. The book is in first person, the first book, so I didn't need the name until somebody asked him, what's your name? And I hadn't got there yet, but I was really looking forward to writing the next scene. And when she said we had to go to the supermarket, I remember feeling that kind of disappointment that you have if somebody stops you reading. If you're, if you're reading a good book and somebody pulls you away from it, you know that feeling that you have of kind of, it's a little frisson of disappointment and frustration. And I remember feeling that and I remember thinking, okay, if I'm feeling this about writing, this might work, you know? So anyway, we go to the supermarket and I'm a tall guy and every time I'm in a supermarket, literally, a little old lady comes up to me and says, you're a nice tall gentleman, would you reach me that can? And my wife said, just as a throwaway line, she said, you know what, if the writing gig doesn't work out, you could be a reacher in a supermarket. <laughs> so supportive. And I thought, yeah, that's a great name. I mean, yeah, she doesn't like me to tell that story because it makes her sound dismissive about it. But she wasn't, you know, she was just making a, a cheerful joke about it, trying to jolly me along. And, and it did give me the name that is now in, is famous all around the world, you know. So basically, um, I owe her a favor for that. Well, what about you? Because you took a new name too. Why Lee Child? Well, that was, um, that was something that, you know, don't forget, uh, I was broke. I was out of work. This had to work. It was not a hobby. It was not a, a sort of sort of kind of like to do sort of thing. It had to work. This was my only chance. And so in those in that situation, you've got to be very smart about choices that you make. And my real name is relatively it's short and simple, but it is relatively hard to hear. Uh, anecdotally, over my whole life, I've noticed that people mishear my real name. They don't get it right, which is lethal in a word-of-mouth business. This is a word-of-mouth business. Somebody said, oh, I read this great book by this guy, and they say the name. And if the person doesn't hear that name correctly or doesn't get it right, they go to the bookstore, can't find the book, the whole thing falls apart. So I was very aware that I needed to have a name that was easy to hear, easy to remember, easy to repeat. Crucially as well, it needed to be early in the alphabet, which was a piece of research that I did at the time. Obviously, back then, everything was physical books in physical bookstores. Nothing online didn't exist. And uh, people browse from left to right. They get bored and fatigued quite early and give up. And so if you are in the early part of the alphabet, your chances are much better. And 
at the time in the in the middle nineties when I started thinking about it, the letter C was outstanding for that. A huge proportion of of good selling books were by authors beginning with C. You've got an eight times better chance of selling books than any other letter. It's a remarkable <laughs> fact. But I, uh, so I thought, okay, I've, you know, I've got to take this seriously. So I needed a name that began with C, and I thought child is also a noun, you know, with warm associations for most people. So I thought, that's great. That is the way to go. There's such a wonderfully analytical, you know, Jack Reacher approach to the problem that you had to solve. Yeah, it is. But, and, you know, you have to do it that way because it's not good enough just to be an inspired amateur. This is a difficult business, like your job, you know. Like, well, I do think it's clear while Sarah Konoski is never going to be a best-selling crime writer. I've well, got, I've got to find something else. Change the K to a C, you do fine. <laughs> Bill Clinton interviewed you about past tense. Was it a little bit bizarre to be being interviewed by a former president of the United States it about your novel? It was utterly bizarre. It was utterly surreal because my first four books when they came out and my first three years living in America, he was the president of the United States. And now he's on the stage with me in a bookstore interviewing me about the book. It was utterly surreal, but also very kind of instructive in a way because... Um, you know the political situation we're in now in America. So you look back to somebody like Bill Clinton. He genuinely loves people. He genuinely loves to read. You know, he wasn't doing me a favor. He loves this genre. He's read widely and deeply in this genre and every other genre. He's just one of those restless intellects that is interested in everything. And uh, I think that made him the effective politician he was, frankly. And it was, um, he was great. He asked very perceptive questions. He had very um, tidy conclusions and explanations for things. It was really quite an education to see, because let's face it, he does have other things on his mind <laughs> other than Jack Reacher. And yet he, he just knows his stuff. It was amazing. But yeah, I was kind of yo-yoing between, it was like chatting with a friend about books and then also thinking, this you, this guy is the president. <laughs> and are you ever tempted to ditch Jack and write a book about someone else? Uh, well, all writers have got like 99 other ideas that they might want to do. But I, I believe, going back to what we said earlier, you know, the familiarity, the reliability of a series, that reading and writing is a kind of collaboration between the writer and the reader. And in a lot of ways, the writer is the servant of the reader, I think, that obviously reading, there's a massive selection of stuff to read, all shades of different kinds of things from every genre, every type, every flavor, every nuance is all available. But each individual writer doesn't have to do everything. You know, each individual writer does what they do. And I'm basically the guy that writes Reacher. And... I think it would be very odd if uh, I, I suddenly wrote something else. I think it breaks that contract. The reader expects another Jack Reacher book. That's what they want. And it would be kind of utterly perverse of me to say, you know what? This year, you're not going to get it. It's like if you went back to get a bolt and that guy made you a, a rivet or something instead. Absolutely, yeah. Or, you know, you walk up to Yankee Stadium and you're wondering, what's it going to be tonight? Hockey? Basketball? <laughs> you know, you, there's got to be a certain amount of reliability. It's been just great to meet you, Lee. Thanks so much for coming into Conversations. It's a real pleasure. I'm, I was very happy to be invited. It's a famous broadcaster all around the world, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski on ABC Radio. That was my conversation with Lee Child from 2018. And since we spoke, Lee has, of course, published another Jack Reacher thriller. The latest is called Blue Moon. He's also written a non-fiction essay on heroism called The Hero. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.